Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we talked with Greg Valliere, Horizon Investments' chief global strategist, about a feud that he's been warning for months was inevitable, President Trump versus the Fed. Greg explained how the fringe idea championed by lawmakers like Senator Rand Paul could go more mainstream and why you can't ignore the irony of President Trump's attacks. If the Fed were indifferent to higher inflation and stronger growth, you could see the markets freak out. It's not to me. It's not really a Fed story. It's a market story. And if Trump wants to erode market confidence in Washington, just start messing with the Federal Reserve. Well, walk us through that more specifically. So how is it going to happen that some tweets from President Trump, which today didn't really have much of an effect on anything, could really cause some damage? Well, he gets to appoint Fed governors, and there are several vacancies right now, so he could start to change the composition of the Fed. He could continue to jawbone against the Fed. And, of course, you have in the House, in particular, a lot of Republicans who would love to curb the Fed's independence. And nothing gets Fed officials more nervous than speculation about the Fed losing some of that independence. Okay, so losing some of its independence from a congressional standpoint, what exactly are you talking about, Uh, that they would be able to uh, audit them? And what, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, there are several bills. One would be to greatly diminish the authority of the New York City Fed president. Another bill would, as you say, uh, allow a very extensive audit. And it's not an audit of the Fed's books. It's an audit of the Fed's policies. Mm. That's a big, big difference. And there are several other proposals as well that would dilute the authority of the Fed. I, I think that if you go back and look at recent history with Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon, even with Alan Greenspan and, and Bush the first, you, you saw pressure on these Fed chairmen, and subsequently we saw economic performance not not looking very good. Greg, this is just my opinion, but uh, uh, Chairman Powell does not strike me as particularly hawkish, and in fact, he seems to have some skepticism about the usefulness of the idea of the uh, full the concept of full unemployment as we know it. And sure. He seems to not be too aggressive. Could it be that uh, what President Trump does ultimately backfires in the sense that it makes people on the FOMC a little bit more inclined to assert their independence through policymaking? Absolutely. That's a great point. There's two scenarios very quickly. One is that the Fed says, by God, we are independent and we're going to raise rates whether you like it or not. That's what you just mentioned. The other, of course, would be if the Fed starts to slow down. Let's say tariff wars get even worse and the Fed gets a little reluctant to to raise rates aggressively. Then some cynics might say, aha, the Fed is slowing down, it's tightening because it's being pressured by the White House. Either way, 
I think that you've got to say that the Fed's motives might be questioned more because Trump has now injected himself into this debate. You can't unring a bell. Once it's said, yep. now everything yep. is under that context. Fair enough. I mean, at the same time, Greg, I want to come back to that audit sure. the Fed idea. I mean, this has been something that mm-hmm. Rand Paul's been pushing for years, right? And yep. it's been seen as sort of more of a fringe idea. Is there really a risk here that it's going to gain more mainstream support from Republicans? <laughs> I mean, you know, what's the probability here that you're going to see any real kind of curbs put on the Fed's independence? It could move in the House, although with Jeb Henserling stepping down, that that removes a big advocate of auditing the Fed. I think the Senate would be the firewall. I don't see enough support in the Senate to do anything uh, dramatic to the Fed, but it, it is out there. And let me just make this other point. In addition to criticism from the right, from conservatives, if the Fed starts raising rates, I guarantee you, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Paul Krugman, and on the left, there would be people saying the Fed's doing too much tightening. Greg, I want to bring, talk a little bit more about that partisan dimension there, because I remember during the Obama years when Bernanke or Yellen would go up on the Hill, you know, the Republicans were definitely much more tough on the performance of the uh, Fed chair at the time. Interestingly, I thought with Powell, you still kind of had that dynamic this week where like Democrats were not particularly harsh towards him. But you saw some pretty, in cases, rude lines of questioning from Republicans. Is this becoming a permanently sort of like Democratic institutions where we might see a situation which Republicans just don't like the Fed? Yeah, they don't like the Fed. I, I agree with that. I, I think that from all I've heard, Powell has lobbied uh, very adroitly members of Congress. He's got good relations with people in both parties. One other point I would make. What an irony here. Donald Trump basically fires Janet Yellen, the most dovish Fed chair in our lifetime. And that's what he wants. He wants a dovish Fed chair, and he fired her. Then we spoke with Bloomberg opinion columnist Nathaniel Bullard about the Trump administration's rollback this week of an Obama-era policy that allowed California to regulate its own greenhouse gas emissions. Nathaniel explained why the Golden State has had the power to set the de facto national standards, causing national reverberations with this regulatory change. Well, the argument that the, that the government is making is simply that California is not sort of within bounds to be doing this, to set its own regulation for emissions that for almost 48 years now has been stricter than the emissions regulations in the rest of the United States. These are things that began, you know, in the days of Los Angeles being a very smoggy place. Uh, and the state has always set a lead that many other states, in fact, 16 states plus the District of Columbia, have then followed. It's the biggest market for automobiles, about 2 million automobiles sold per year in California. And the result is with that market, plus a lot of other big states following that need, California tends to set the way for the national standard for tailpipe emissions and especially for fuel economy. Right, and the government is saying basically, no. Right. That's a key thing because California is so big, it kind of de facto sets the national standard. All right. Let's talk about what California has done. You point out that since 2004, California's own greenhouse gas emissions significantly lower than they used to be. What is the driver of that? Well, the first thing is policy. The state said we're going to set a policy to get down to 1990 emissions levels by the year 2020. And it did it. So it actually hit that target four years early. Its latest inventory is through the year 2016, and it's now back down to that level. So that's like a 13% reduction in total emissions. 
at the same time that you had a 26% increase in GDP from the year 2004. That's when emissions peaked and they came down 13%. GDP is up twice as much as the decline in emissions. All right. And when you break it down, uh, emissions from the power sector dropping 35 percent. Emissions from transportation, however, fell only slightly. When you look at transportation a little bit more closely, what is that? What's driving some of that? How much of it is higher efficiency fuel standards versus what you call substitution? People using bicycles or electric scooters like the one Joe's so fond of yes. versus uh Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Driving their own individual cars? It's a good question, Sarah. At the moment, it's almost entirely due to fuel economy standards and greater efficiency. There's just simply too many vehicles on the road in California for any of the two big substitutions that we could see in the future. The first being to go towards electric vehicles and the second being to go towards things other than automobiles to really take shape. So it's really a story of efficiency. And you can therefore see why California has such stringent policies in place because Really, the emissions have not budged much for its biggest sector for emitting, transportation. And if it wants to move that, it's got to go to higher efficiency. And so has the state been working on doing that? And how much then does this potential ruling by the administration set that back? I think the biggest question is on setting it back is what legal recourse is going to be taking place. And I think we should expect quite a lot of lawsuits. I know uh, the head of the Air Resources Board, Mary Nichols, has often said, see you in court. I think in so many words, that's what she said. Uh, She declined to comment to Bloomberg earlier today, but I think we can expect to see this wrapped up in litigation for quite some time. Uh, The other real question is going to be, though, what the manufacturers are going to do. I think the manufacturers have always lobbied to get rid of these standards. However, they've always gone along with California's standards simply because do they really want to be making multiple models of the same chassis in every different vehicle class in the United States? Some for California standards, some for the standards of the rest. Right, it's really it's a big market. Yeah, That's and, right. It's the biggest market. On top of that, if the U.S. changes its emission standards, of course, other places like Asia and Europe Absolutely. are making more stringent. Absolutely. Uh, Nathaniel, Scarlett sort of joked about the scooters and my fondness for them, but it brings a serious question. Regulations aside, will the innovations in transportation that we're seeing where people finding new ways to get across the city, get across town, will they start to move the dial eventually, in your view, in terms of meaningful change to the, uh, to the energy mix? So I think what you're going to see first is a change to the traffic mix more than anything. So. Mm-hmm. Take an urban commute, for instance, it might only be 10 miles, but it could be 90 minutes in a car just slowly navigating through traffic. So what I think you're going to see first are air local, very local air quality improvements from having cars off the road if they get off the road, impacts in terms of traffic congestion, uh, and just a general substitution of little vehicles for bigger ones. You know, there was this great piece of research out from uh, an Uber an Uber analyst who yeah. shows the traffic patterns for its electric bicycles versus its cars. And you can see there is a, a peaking in bike traffic when people commute and during the day hours, and then the cars elsewhere.
And finally, we caught up with Sandy Darity, a professor in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke, about how to make a federal jobs guarantee work. Professor Darity explained why this idea isn't as radical as people think and has strong historical precedent from the New Deal era, showing the government could implement a federal jobs plan effectively. Federal jobs guarantee would address two major issues. First, it would address the problem of underemployment. People who are underpaid, have uh, precarious work hours, may have no benefits, and the like. And it would also address any residual problems with unemployment that we have, even in a period where there's a relatively low unemployment rate, but also in periods where uh, we might have pressure for increasing unemployment as a consequence of the business cycle. Now, it's pretty incredible that we see more and more politicians embracing an idea that FDR aside, I think many people would consider to be fairly radical. Another popular idea recently that you hear a lot about, a universal basic income, uh, you, hear, you see them, the two of them debated or pitted head-to-head. Why uh, would a jobs guarantee be a superior program in your view? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a radical idea at all. Right. We have a long tradition of trying to have direct forms of employment, particularly dating to the Great Depression, when FDR, in particular, introduced the Works Progress Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps. The idea behind a federal job guarantee is that we make that type of a policy universal and permanent. So it's, it's, it's got a strong historical precedent already in the United States. Now, Ken, you know, obviously in a downturn, the idea is the government becomes an employer of last resort, people who are unemployed. What are the types of jobs that can be sort of expanded quickly to make sure that people can work? So the types of jobs that we have in mind are twofold. Jobs that would address the nation's physical infrastructural needs as well as the human infrastructural needs. So the physical infrastructural needs are associated with traditional kinds of projects that have been done through public works, like the building of roads, uh, buildings and highways and the like that support the public need. But the, uh, the human infrastructure would be supported by the provision of child care and elder care through a professionalized workforce that would be developed out of the federal job guarantee. Critics say, and you sort of hinted at it with professionalized workforce, but critics say that these, these are jobs that require quite a bit of skill. They're not just jobs that the average person can do if they lose their job in a depression, and that the, and that better to just give everyone a check, everyone can take a check, whereas to you know put people in the position of caring for the elderly, caring for children, rebuilding our infrastructure is not something that we can ramp up easily. Well, certainly we think that those of us who've been advocating this, and this includes Derek Hamilton, who's a faculty member at the, at the New School, we've been advocating the development of a serious and, and intricate training program for individuals who participate in this in this project. Uh, the idea is that we do want substantive and valuable jobs to be performed, and we do need to prepare people to do them. Even if we were talking about the physical infrastructure, like repairing bridges, uh, people do have to be trained how to do that. So we also should train them to engage in elder care and child care. So you would pair a federal jobs guarantee with sort of a robust training program to build up people's skills. Absolutely. Now, what about the charge or the complaint that to some extent this is a conservative idea, that it's workfare, that you're saying, okay, we can 
support you, but you have to show that you're working. And this is something typically progressives have um, fought back against. So in conjunction with PolicyLink, we've developed a, a statement about 10 fundamental principles that should apply to the provision of a federal job guarantee. And one of those principles indicates that it should not be a workfare program. We do not compel people to work. We do not deny them other types of social supports if they don't engage in work. And we do not set time limits on the period under which they can hold the federal job. Do you feel confident that just the government is capable of administrating such a program? Yes. And the reason I feel confident is, again, because of the precedent that was established during the Great Depression of administering the Works Progress Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, in terms of fighting inflation and in terms of sort of buying power, how significant could this be in terms of just sort of making sure that prices remain stable and ag aggregate demand remains stable? Well, one of the questions you asked me was about the comparison with the universal basic yeah. income. And the universal basic income would be intrinsically inflationary. However, the federal job guarantee would mitigate the degree of inflation because people are going to actually be engaged in the process of providing goods and services. Real quickly, how long have you been personally interested in this and how surprised have you been in recent months to see elected politicians taking it seriously? So I think I've been engaged in trying to advocate this for at least a decade, if not longer, certainly since the beginning of the Great Recession. And yes, I'm absolutely surprised to see <laughs> this catching on because for many, many years people told me this is an idea that will not have any wings. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.